This is a History YouTuber's collaboration on Africa. Be sure to check out the entire playlist in the description below. Africa, where the human story began. Yet, for most of us here in the West, we know less of African history than anywhere else on Earth. Nowhere is this more true than in the South, where spoken history and oral tradition have long reigned supreme. When Europeans first came here in the 1800s, such was their fixation on the written word that it was argued this place had no history at all. One of those men was a German-American big-game hunter named Adam Render. Whilst hunting in the highlands of the interior in 1867, he found something astonishing. 1,500 kilometers inland, on the highland plateau of modern-day Zimbabwe, surrounded by an endless array of massive rocks in a seemingly barren landscape, he found the ruins of a magnificent ancient city. Crafted in expertly worked stone, the walls here curve and flow along the contours of the ground, with nothing besides gravity and the extreme architectural precision of those who built them to keep them in place. The most formidable structure of the city, known as the Great Enclosure, has walls 11 metres tall and 6 metres wide at the lowest point that extend for 250 metres. Built using millions of bricks, this is the largest pre-modern structure to the south of the Sahara Desert. Render wasn't the first European to come upon this place. More than 300 years earlier, several Portuguese sailors described the city in detail, one of them arguing that it must have been built by the devil himself. Such was the foreboding architecture of the place. It existed in local legend too, of course, the Shona people of the region continuing to retell their past in song and story. The city had never been lost to them. As far as they were concerned, it was a place of their ancestors. Yet, when German explorer Karl Mauch arrived in the area to conduct the first archaeological survey in 1871, he concluded that the city was so impressive it could never have been built by native Africans instead associating it with the long-hypothesized biblical site of King Solomon's mines. At the time, it was widely believed that Africans south of the Sahara simply never had the sophistication needed to smelt iron, work gold, or build a kingdom. Over the decades to come, though a number of scholars did argue to the contrary, the white minority government of Southern Africa continued to toe this line, with arguments to the city's origins ranging from the Queen of Sheba to long-lost Phoenicians to ancient Egypt. Finally, by the mid-20th century, the growing weight of evidence could simply not be ignored any longer. Great Zimbabwe, as the site was now known, once home to between 18 and 25,000 people, had in fact been built by Africans. Not only that, but this city was part of a much larger system, being the centre of a rich African trading kingdom between the 11th and 15th centuries, now thought to have dominated all of the lands from the Zambezi to the Limpopo rivers, including much of modern-day Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Alongside a huge amount of native pottery and metalwork, items have been found here from China, Persia, and all over the Indian Ocean trade network. 
Though it is the largest stone town of its type in southern Africa, Great Zimbabwe is not the first nor the last. In fact, some 200 others exist across the region. Most containing similar styles of architecture, suggesting a long-lasting and widespread culture. The descendants of which now live all across southern Africa. Having dispersed into many groups and nations, the ruin even gave its name to the country of Zimbabwe when it became independent in 1980. But why is this place not more widely known? Well, until the 1970s, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the official government line in Rhodesia was that Great Zimbabwe was a mystery. This is a story that was very nearly lost forever and has only begun to be taught in African school curriculums in the last few decades, let alone in the West. This is the story of Great Zimbabwe and the first cities of Southern Africa. This video is sponsored by Magellan TV, a brand new educational streaming service with over 2,000 documentaries to watch on all manner of different subjects. Magellan's producers and curators have brought together an astounding collection of documentaries on history, science, nature, culture and geography. These include films, series and exclusive playlists you can't find anywhere else. Like Netflix, this is a streaming service, but made just for documentary lovers and knowledge seekers. You can watch Magellan anywhere, at any time, on any device, directly through the High Quality app, which also offers a wide selection of content in 4K at no extra cost. There are no ads or limited access at any time, and the best part, new documentaries are added on a weekly basis. If you enjoy this video on Great Zimbabwe, then why don't you delve a little further into African history with Origins of Africa, Africa's primeval oceans and Africa Today, along with a whole host of other historical content. Those of you who head on over to MagellanTV.com forward slash history time or use my link in the description below will get a free trial. So what are you waiting for? Head on over and get yourself some free knowledge. When the Romans took control of Egypt during the first century BC, they came into direct contact with an ocean-born world to the south and the east. Here on the lush shores of the Red Sea, and across the Indian Ocean beyond, existed an ancient system of trade, one of the most important crossroads in world history. For those daring enough to attempt the voyage from southern Arabia across to the multitude of emporiums on India's western coast, a fortune could be made. And then, due to the curious monsoon winds of the sea, if all went to plan, they could be blown all the way back to where they started, with little effort. Sometime between the 1st and 3rd centuries AD, a hard-headed Greek sea captain made a record of the various ports and anchorages across this vast ocean of opportunity. We know it as the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea. That unnamed merchant sailor, clearly a veteran of the trade winds, not only describes a huge multitude of Indian, Persian, Arabian, Yemeni and Egyptian ports, but he describes the world to the south too. For it wasn't just India that Greco-Roman merchants would travel to to sell their wares, but Africa too. The 3rd century prophet Mani, a Persian by birth, 
regarded the Aksumite Empire in modern-day Ethiopia as one of the four great powers of his time, alongside Persia, Rome and China. In the next century, this city-building civilization with links to the Middle East lasting thousands of years would become one of the first Christian powers in the world. Further south, in modern-day Somalia, a multitude of other cities are described. Until finally, we get to our southernmost port. Raptor. Somewhere on the coast of modern-day Tanzania, the great 2nd century geographer Ptolemy also describes the lands further inland from here suggesting Alexandrian travellers knew of Mount Kilimanjaro and the Great Lakes region where the Nile originates. It's more than likely that they first made port at the trading emporium of Raptor. According to the Periplus, a source of ivory, tortoise shell and rhino horn. Items often originating far inland. Perhaps an outpost of the Himyarite Kingdom of Yemen. Historian James Innes Miller argues that Raptor may have once formed a vital trade link between modern-day Indonesia and consumers in the Mediterranean. For centuries, the location of Raptor was thought to have been lost, and it is still debated today. In recent decades, however, Tanzanian archaeologist Dr. Felix Charmi discovered on the island of Mafia and Shuani a heavy concentration of Roman and Egyptian coins dating from the first few centuries AD, suggesting this may have been the location of the lost trading hub. From the 4th until the 9th centuries, as Rome declined, East Africa largely disappears from the Western historical record. Though Raptor does seem to have survived for a time, being mentioned by the 6th century trader Cosmas Indicopleistes and by Stephanus of Byzantium. Yet, by this time, most of the merchants active in this region originated in southern Arabia. Thus, with the birth of Islam in the 7th century, it was Islamic traders who began to dominate the coastal routes. Now, finally, we have our first mention of native Africans along the southern African coastline. A Bantu-speaking group of farmers and fishermen known as the Swahili. The Swahili language the word itself, coming from the Arabic for coast, is a melting pot, reflecting the diverse groups of peoples who plied this coast, also containing Indian and even Portuguese words. By the 9th century, all along modern-day Somalia, Kenya and Tanzania, urbanised Islamic communities began to form, building in stone and in coral, Long thought to have been built by Islamic emigres, modern archaeology and even contemporary accounts now heavily suggest that though Islamic in origin, this was a native African tradition. Perhaps the most important of these sites now sits on a remote Tanzanian island. The ruined city of Kilwa Kisiwani, settled from around the 9th century onwards. Often referred to as a stone town, Kilwa is in fact built in coral, cut from the living rock itself and then plastered over. The coral architecture here, contemporary with Gothic architecture in Europe, is not only beautiful but technically sophisticated. Ibn Battuta visited here in the 14th century he described the Great Mosque as one of the wonders of the world. When the Portuguese came later, they wrote of the hundred-room palace of the Sultan, 
along with possessing a vast fortune of innumerable precious stones and gold, the sultans of Kilwa even minted their own coins, the first in southern Africa. This was a period of remarkable prosperity, with merchants here able to import such luxury goods as Thai stoneware and porcelain from late Song and early Ming Dynasty China. And, crucially for us, they traded them with merchants from the hinterlands. At this port in modern-day Tanzania, traders from the outer world, India, China and Arabia would all come to sell their wares. But they weren't the source of Kilwa's wealth, for the merchants here were middlemen. The source of their trade goods lay far away in the interior. On the highland plateau of Zimbabwe, 1500 kilometers away, where coins from Kilwa have been found alongside items from China, Persia and Arabia. Though even before the rise of Great Zimbabwe in the 11th century, we get hints of a long-standing trade relationship with the interior, a thriving system perhaps dating back to the time of Raptor. The great Islamic traveller and geographical writer Al-Masudi, who journeyed in person down the East African coast in around 922, recorded a substantial trade in ivory and gold with the interior at this time. The king of this interior realm bore such titles as Son of the Great Master, the God of the Earth and Sky, and was the foremost of all African rulers known by the Arabs. In other words, he was most certainly a follower of native African religion, as we shall see were the builders of Great Zimbabwe. In the 1970s, in modern-day Mozambique, a vital link between the coast and the interior was discovered, in the form of a medieval walled city. Manyakeni, a Bantu word meaning the place where people give to each other, was a stone-built capital site. And crucially for our story, gold wasn't just a commodity here. It was buried with the dead. just as it was at Great Zimbabwe, reflecting a non-Islamic African tradition. A unique type of cattle-feeding grass grows here too, a type originating on the Zimbabwean highlands and not found anywhere else in Mozambique, leading experts to suggest that this was an outpost of Great Zimbabwe. In a devastating twist, the museum holding the priceless artefacts excavated here was destroyed in a fire. Not the first or the last time elements of African history were lost forever. When Europeans first began carving up Southern Africa in the 1800s, a lack of written history made it easier for them to justify their civilizing mission, mostly ignoring the often inconvenient oral history of the place. Today, by using modern archaeological techniques and by investigating the fragments of oral history that do survive, we can arrive at a somewhat basic picture of the history of this land. Just as Greek and Indian sailors crossed over the Erythraean Sea to make their fortunes in the first few centuries AD, another migration took hold over much of Africa. We know this period as the Bantu migrations.
Climatological data tells us that the Sahara Desert suffered a significant drying up around this time, in part leading to a mass population movement to the south, and eventual revolution in metalworking and society throughout the continent. As early as 300 AD, certain Iron Age Bantu pastoralists got as far south as the Limpopo River, on the border of modern-day South Africa, bringing their herd animals, secrets of metalworking, and perhaps the legacy of Sudanic kingship and kingdom building to the region for the first time. More groups continued to arrive from the Great Lakes region over the centuries to come, either displacing or merging with existing hunter-gatherer groups. Until finally, by around 900 AD, complex, sedentary states began to form. Many of which share a common material culture. One of these sites occupied from at least the 9th century onwards the same time Kilwa put down its roots on the coast, gives its name to this entire culture. Discovered on a small hilltop near the town of Bulawayo in 1947, Leopard's Copier is a relatively small site, though one with notable evidence of metalworking, insular pottery, building in stone, and as time went on, trade. The staple diet for most people remained agricultural produce, sorghum, millet, beans and squash. Though cattle raising became an important economic force, clearly demonstrated by cattle pens in most villages, being the major meeting place and ceremonial centre, and by the miniature figurines of long-horned cows and cattle horns, evidence of a pre-Christian and pre-Islamic African civilization, the direct ancestors of today's Shona people, the largest ethnic group in modern-day Zimbabwe. A multitude of rival towns likely existed at this time, all vying with each other for lucrative trade rights with the Swahili coast. For our story, one of the most important of these early stone towns is a site known today as Schroeder, named for the farm it was found on. Modest Schroeder may seem, yet this settlement is the first link in a chain eventually leading to the architecture of Great Zimbabwe. In many Bantu areas today, and other pastoralist groups all over the world, people still measure wealth in terms of how many cattle you own, still being used as dowries in many cases. Even today, business and important meetings are still often undertaken in the cattle corral, the centre of the community. Just over a thousand years ago, it was this fixation that may have led to the formation of the region's first elites. Only the richest could afford each other's bride prices, thus setting them as a people apart. At Schroeder and other sites in the Limpopo Valley, we have archaeological evidence of the jump from pastoralist farmers to complex, centralised state increasingly dependent on the ivory trade with the East. Vitally, more glass beads are found at this site than anywhere else in the area at this time, suggesting a monopoly over trade with the Swahili coast, which may have exhausted ivory links further east to the sea and been forced to look further inland as a result, thus kick-starting this societal shift at Schroeder, these travelling merchants found good trading partners, and the elites became rich. It's thought by some scholars that glass beads may have even begun to replace cattle as a form of currency. It is also this time that gold mining begins. 
Was this the native African kingdom spoken of by al-Masudi? With great prosperity, however, always comes a price. The new elites at Schroeder had effectively placed a target on their backs. By around 1000 AD, a new group, attracted by Schroeder's wealth and trade with the outside world, moved in and conquered the area, pushing the people of Schroeder away to the west and establishing their own settlement complete with a cattle corral. We know it as K2. A particularly large site, K2 has an especially rich material culture suggesting a powerful elite here with an increasingly important class distinction between social groups. Manufacturers here even began making their own beads, perhaps having seized the means of how to do so, from traders of the coast. Another important leap begins here too, as gold is mined in far greater frequencies than before. Perhaps after the people here realized the high prices it could get from the traders from the Swahili coast. As more gold was mined, trade increased dramatically, attracting more and more people to the area. Cattle was now no longer the sole determinant of wealth, and corrals began to make way for law and royal trade courts. By around 1075, something astonishing happens. The royal elite at K2 seem to have made a conscious decision to separate themselves from their ever-growing population of subjects. Relocating permanently to a nearby hilltop, a site that may have been used previously for ceremonial purposes. We know it today as Mapungupwe Hill, meaning place of stone and place of jackals in the local languages. The beating heart of South Central Africa's first verifiable kingdom. On an imposing hilltop at the very northern tip of modern day South Africa, exists one of the most important archeological sites in the whole of the continent. For this is where kingship in the South truly began. Here, at the meeting point between the Limpopo and the Shashi rivers, once existed the thriving capital of a pre-colonial kingdom. The wooden and stone structures that once filled this landscape are now long gone. Yet evidence does remain, etched into the barren earth and the living rock. 900 years ago, stone and wood were used here together, creating a beautiful synthesis of humanity and nature. Archaeologists found evidence here of a grand stone enclosure, not too different to the one at Great Zimbabwe, as well as a wooden palisade wall built for defence and for the privacy of the elite. For the royal family here, were very much a people apart. Just like at Manyakeni and at Great Zimbabwe, they were laid to rest with gold. Most of the city's population would have lived inside an enclosing wall on the plains below the hilltop. Spatial organization in the kingdom involved the use of stone walls to separate areas based on social distinction for the first time a system that would later be replicated in countless other sites up until the 19th century. The common people would come up to pay tribute or bring supplies, but mostly they would stay down below. The growth in population here may have led to full-time specialists in ceramics, specifically pottery, but also metalworking most of which is lost today due to neglect and treasure hunting in the early 20th century. Though some does survive, hinting at an astonishing material culture. 
Gold is an easier material to smelt than iron, which had already been mastered by Bantu for centuries. Gold working thus came naturally to these people, with significant evidence of mining found from this era. And gold itself became extremely important, perhaps taking on a ritualistic, spiritual quality, being valued for more than just its monetary price and buried with rulers. It was also gold that attracted people back here in the late 1800s and early 1900s, leading to the widespread looting and melting down of gold items. It is a wonder that this golden rhino, buried on top of the hill, has survived to the present. One of the most iconic artefacts of the site, thought to represent a black rhino, an animal associated with the ancestors in Shona tradition, spent most of the 20th century locked away in a storeroom at Pretoria University. At least 24 skeletons were unearthed on Mapungupwe Hill in the 1930s. We don't know any of their names or even the name they called themselves as a people. And most of them disintegrated almost as soon as they were exposed to light and air. Eleven, however, were available for analysis. Recent genetic studies found that two individuals, a male and a female, were in fact of Khoisan descent and thought to be a king and queen of the city. All of the bodies were laid to rest in the traditional Bantu burial position, with legs drawn to the chest, arms folded around the front of the knees and facing to the west. One was found with this beautiful gold mace or scepter, another with this golden headdress, once thought to be a ceremonial bowl. We can only wonder what other items once rested here. Up until well into the 20th century, local tradition here still saw Mapungupwe Hill as a cursed, dangerous place, with the potential repercussions for trespassing including death and going blind. It was these superstitions, perhaps a leftover of the ritualization of sacred kingship, that saved the burial grounds here from grave robbers for so long. For the king here was loved, feared, and perhaps at times worshipped by his people. For he held the power to distribute wealth. This was the secret to the kingdom's success, how it stayed together for so long, and why he and his family had to live apart from their subjects. This tradition of common people below and the ruling family living on a hilltop above was carried on at later sites such as Great Zimbabwe, and is also found at other contemporary sites such as Mapela, found in 1967, though it remains unclear what the connection between the two was. Many experts think the king may have been a priestly figure, with his family members doing the day-to-day -day running of the state in the city below, and he performing more of a ceremonial role. The city below probably housed a population of up to 5,000 people, with a number of outlying settlements. The sheer wealth and unique material culture discovered here and at other sites suggests a kingdom dominating the Limpopo Valley, potentially spanning an area some 30,000 kilometers in size, an area no doubt kept in line through military prowess. There is a reason why we don't know much about Mapungupwe. Like Great Zimbabwe, the first archaeologist to undertake research here went into the dig with preconceived notions of what he was about to find. 
for he was Guy Gardiner. And as far as he was concerned, this was a long-lost ancient Egyptian colony. From 1935 until 1940, Gardiner worked at the site largely alone, with a modest team of African diggers. And according to many historians, such was the lack of care given that the wheelbarrows of topsoil dug up were only sifted every now and again, for the most part being thrown off the side of the hill in the search for larger items. Vital knowledge being lost forever in the process. Mapam Gupwe remained a little-known obscure site, and Gardner's findings were only published 23 years later. It would be many years yet before the native African roots of this site would be recognised. We know not the names of any of the kings who ruled here, and soon enough, their time was up. Perhaps the kingdom fell in battle, Perhaps the ivory or gold ran out, or the cities of the Swahili coast found new trading partners. For many experts, however, it was climatic conditions that ended life at Mapungupwe. The Little Ice Age making life simply not feasible here anymore. By 1290, the place was abandoned for good with the last of its inhabitants moving on to better climes. To the north, on the Zimbabwean plateau, one of these sites was about to enter a golden age, for a new kingdom was on the rise. In 1905, British archaeologist David Randall MacIver arrived at Great Zimbabwe to embark on a new analysis of the city. The previous century had not been kind to the heritage of the Zimbabwean plateau, with the pickaxes of gold prospectors soon being followed by the spades of looters. Perhaps the most notorious of these two Brits named Neil and Johnson, founders of the Rhodesian Ancient Ruins Company, made an absolute fortune from amassing irreplaceable medieval gold from the region before melting it down into ingots, around 50 kilos in all. In the late 19th century, any artefacts lying near to the topsoil at Great Zimbabwe suffered a similar fate. In 1904, a freelance scholar named R.N. Hall convinced that the place was originally a Phoenician city, removed as much as 12 feet of topsoil and occupation layers in order to get down to what he saw as the ancient layers below. Referring to the occupation layers of the Shona city as African detritus, throwing it away into the surrounding bush. Yet, nevertheless, when MacGyver arrived at the site, the city was so large that more than enough evidence remained to conduct his analysis. Having no preconceived notions of what he would find at the site, instead, simply taking the evidence at face value, he found absolutely nothing to suggest that the site hadn't, in fact, been built by Africans. The issue remained a controversial one, however, and MacGyver's stance far from a fully established consensus. Yet, in 1929, another dig undertaken by Gertrude Thompson came to much the same conclusions. And finally, in the 1950s, Peter Garlake, with the aid of Carbon-14 dating, put the matter to rest once and for all. Though he himself was forced to leave the country in 1970, everywhere besides Rhodesia now agreed. Great Zimbabwe, medieval city that thrived from the 11th to the 15th centuries, had been built and lived in by Africans. For Garlic, the evidence overwhelmingly suggested that the rulers of Great Zimbabwe had been a tightly organised aristocratic kinship group, 
possessing a court culture, existing alongside numerous other Shona groups and traditions. The sheer size and material wealth at the site suggests a monopoly over internal and external trade in the region, and very probably a long-term military, economic and social dominance over the entire plateau, heavily fortified by religious power and devotion. Situated at the southeastern end of the Zimbabwean plateau, Great Zimbabwe wasn't actually in the gold-producing areas, which extended around it in a wide arc. These were already well-established by the time that it was built. It was a site chosen on purpose due to its temperate climate and varied agricultural potential, midway between dry grazing lands and damp valleys. On a crossroads that captures the moist southeast trade winds from the coast, and receives unusually constant and reliable rainfall as a result. The place was at the centre of an internal system of trade, as well as the external one it had monopoly over. Significant evidence exists of raw products from the entire plateau being brought here in order to be reworked by master craftspeople. And records prior to its looting in the 19th century show that the site was a centre of craft and industry. Metal bracelets and bangles in various states of production were found all over the hill ruin and the great enclosure, along with gold beads, gold wire and thin sheets of gold thought to cover buildings. Cotton was spun and woven here, evidenced by many spindles found all over the site and local soapstone was used to make, amongst other things, flat dishes engraved with beautiful carvings of long-horned cattle, zebras, baboons and other animals. Terracotta models are found of animals too, mostly in the form of cattle, reminiscent of earlier finds at sites of the leopard's copier culture. Perhaps the most impressive finds of all, however, were made in 1902. A hoard of trade goods that not only exemplify overseas contacts, but were sufficiently important enough to qualify as more than African detritus. A great quantity of iron, copper, bronze and gold was found, along with three iron gongs, musical instruments associated with kingship in Shona and Bantu tradition. And various iron hoes, other items often associated with Shona kingship. Most important of all, however, were the mysterious soapstone bird carvings that are found nowhere else before and nowhere else after, seeming to be completely unique. Thought to represent African fish eagles, the statues, nine of which have been found some of them the size of a person, may represent divine messengers, a link between the earth and the sky, or even symbolic images of the ancestors. They are now on the flag of modern-day Zimbabwe. Alongside these native finds was a vast plethora of foreign goods mostly dating from the 14th or 15th centuries, thought to be the heyday of the city. Cowrie shells from the Indian Ocean, a Persian bowl bearing an Arabic inscription, Chinese celadon and stoneware vessels, and tens of thousands of glass trade beads. Perhaps this was tribute received by the ruler here, a tiny hint of the immense amounts of trade that once went on. Though slightly later than the period of Great Zimbabwe's height, in 1517 we get a near-contemporary description of those who lived on the Zimbabwean plateau, from the Portuguese writer Duarte Barbosa. The brother-in-law of Ferdinand Magellan, the first circumnavigator of the globe, Barbosa spent much time on the Swahili coast during the early 16th century. According to him, Emissaries from the interior regularly came to the coastal ports to buy cottons from India and silks from China. 
The most noble of these wore skins with tassel tails that trailed on the ground, tokens of their dignity and status. They carried swords thrust into wooden scabbards, bound with much gold and other metals. Others carried spears or bows with arrows of finely pointed iron, for they are warlike men as well as great traders. Their court was three weeks' journey away inland, and there stood the king's palace, a very large building, curious and well-constructed, in which no cement can be seen, well known as the King's Zimbabwe, meaning Big House of Stone. The wealth of the city was indeed derived from exports. We can clearly see a huge enrichment of the whole site sometime in the 13th century, with jewellery of gold, ingots of copper, imported Chinese porcelain and Persian glazed wares all arriving at this time curiously coinciding with the decline of Mapungupwe. Had the elites there relocated to Great Zimbabwe? Or had the Great Zimbabwe elite simply usurped the trade links from their rivals? For most people, however, life remained largely the same, with wealth being reinvested in cattle, pastured on the southern slopes of the plateau and moved up and downhill in a transhuman lifestyle. The rulers, of course, lived a life apart. They could use imported goods such as rich textiles to reward their followers, and to fund the colossal enclosures we can still see today. More outposts were built during this time too, commanding the places of pasturage and gold production to the north all the hallmarks of an expanding kingdom. Permanent settlement at Great Zimbabwe seems to have begun sometime in the 11th century, the hill complex probably being the earliest area of occupation. At first, the walls were relatively crudely built and similar to other contemporary sites of the leopard's copier culture. Situated on an ecological crossroads where many climatic areas meet, Great Zimbabwe may have begun as a trade fair. Soon enough, however, a royal family definitively established themselves and their retinues on the hilltop, with everyone else living down below, much like Mapungupwe before. Infrastructure here was impressive, all the necessary water, food and building materials had to be painstakingly brought up the hill in order to support the elite. And they were supported for centuries, for the ruling class and royal family controlled the flow of wealth and the influx of gold. On top of the hill, supplied with beer and vegetables from local producers, and milk and meat from royal herds kept moving around the country the rich were most certainly kept apart from normal people. Though pieces of iron ore were found in a cave on the hill complex, as well as the remains of smelting furnaces nearby, commoners were not usually allowed up here, for this was the royal burial place of kings. For most people of the kingdom, a cow was an invaluable commodity in itself its milk and cheese able to sustain entire families. For the king, however, it was different. Evidence of significant numbers of cattle being slaughtered and presumably their meat being consumed has been found on top of the hill. This was a status symbol, clearly demonstrating the power of the elite. This is also remarkably similar to another originally pastoralist group who placed a spiritual emphasis on cattle raising, even after settling down to a sedentary lifestyle. The early Germanic people of Europe, said by the Roman historian Tacitus to have only farmed reluctantly. The hill complex may have been the ritual centre of the kingdom. There was even a cave where the king could bellow out and be heard in the valley below.
like Mapham Gupway before it, and a wealth of neighbouring sites before, at the same time, and after. Enclosures are found at Great Zimbabwe. The result of many centuries of experimentation and development. And perhaps evolution from earlier Bantu cattle corrals. Rather than individual buildings, enclosures never had roofs. They were used to cut off a particular area of the settlement in a private setting. It's thought that each one would have been filled with circular clay-walled buildings for sleeping, cooking, entertaining guests or merchants, and housing animals. The largest may have had areas designed for ceremonies and for holding court, but they were all set in a private context, each perhaps forming a family dwelling for an elite group, or for different professions, divided between priests, bureaucrats, merchants, historians remain divided on the issue. The very concept of stone walling is completely unique to this region and reflects both the geographical isolation of the builders here and their insular culture compared to other areas of the world. As far as we can tell, there are no streets, no public gathering areas, no monumental buildings, but there are intriguing structures which defy complete explanation, such as this one thought to possibly be a sundial. As time goes on, particularly through the 13th century, increased sophistication of construction begins, with steps and altars on terraces being incorporated into walls. Sometime, probably in the 14th century, at the height of the power of the city, the most famous and largest of these structures was built. We know it as the Great Enclosure. Each stone here was painstakingly put in place with human hands. There are no straight lines, only curves, clearly demonstrating a highly sophisticated level of stone masonry. The absence of mortar and the thickness of the stones at the bottom gave these walls the flexibility to survive movement without collapse. The winding maze of passageways here, thought by many experts to have been designed in an ingenious way to keep each social class away from each other, merge into an inner wall encircling a series of structures and a younger outer wall, as well as a tower nine meters high. Perhaps a residence for royal queens, a temple complex, or a sort of royal court where the king could resolve disputes whilst remaining cut off from the people. The exact function of the great enclosure remains disputed, though more than 12 smaller structures of a similar style are found at the site too. Nevertheless, these enclosures only housed people of the elite class. Everyone else, farmers, artisans and craftsmen, the vast majority of the population here lived outside, in wattle and daub houses that leave little trace. Though as many as 6,000 households are thought to have existed here, perhaps housing as many as 25,000 people at the height of the city, spanning an area of over seven square kilometers. As we have seen time and time again, Great Zimbabwe didn't exist in isolation. More than 80 other contemporary sites have been found, all containing elite enclosures of a similar type. Unfortunately, few have been investigated properly and many were looted at the end of the 19th century. Many of these sites were simply far too small and Great Zimbabwe too large to have any kind of an independent existence, possibly being satellite settlements. But a handful, such as Lekawater, Motoko, and Chumnungwado, do have surviving walls on a scale like Great Zimbabwe, hinting at a more complicated geopolitical situation than can ever be satisfactorily described from archaeology alone. 
And of course, not everyone lived at Great Zimbabwe or one of the other satellite stone towns. Mostly living in poverty in the countryside, these peasant farmers and miners, perhaps kept in check by ritualized kingship, made up the majority of the population, being depended on by rulers for food, manpower, and ultimately, their wealth. By the mid-15th century, archaeology suggests Great Zimbabwe ceased being a trade center of major importance. People continued to live here, perhaps even into the 18th and 19th centuries to a certain degree. Yet, power had most certainly shifted away from the city. Like Mapam Gupwe before it, no one knows definitively why the city collapsed, with speculation ranging from environmental catastrophe, an expansionist ruler who overextended himself, knock-on effects from the Portuguese arrival and swift annexation of several Swahili settlements, including Kilwa for a time, or simple competition from increasingly powerful regional rivals. Yet, the culture that had existed here most certainly survived, with succeeding archaeological sites such as Kami, capital of the Kingdom of Butua, suggesting a continuation and mastering of stone building techniques. A multitude of newer stone towns fill the gap left by Great Zimbabwe's fall. But eventually, by around the 16th century, one of them, the Kingdom of Mutapa, said by Shona oral tradition to have been founded by a renegade prince from Great Zimbabwe, would find a new profitable trading partner in the form of the Portuguese. Eventually extending its control over all the others. That prince, perhaps the first named Zimbabwean in history, Nyatsimba Mutota, is said to have abandoned his home in the south and moved north to the Zambezi because of a shortage of salt. Perhaps reflecting a dire economic or agricultural situation that made living at the city unfeasible. A second tradition outright states that there was a great hunger in the kingdom from which the prince fled. By the early 17th century, the Portuguese increasingly sought to monopolize their influence in the area, and a complicated and devastating series of wars began, leading to the collapse of all of the previous kingdoms and the rise of a new empire, as a direct response to the Portuguese. Unlike previous trading states, this was an inward-looking warrior empire, led by a warlord named Changamaya Dondo, said in some legends to have practiced black magic. Known as the Roswi, roughly translating as destroyers, this increased militarization, including the adoption of muskets and a professional army, led to another series of lengthy conflicts and the eventual expulsion of the Portuguese from the interior. But also, now that outside trade links had been cut off by the Portuguese presence on the coast, increasingly widespread raiding and looting of neighbours. By the early 19th century, this new culture of war had spread, leading to the rise of one of the most famous, yet least understood, African rulers in history, Shaka Zulu. As the Zulu nation went on the warpath to the south, thus began a 25-year period of chaos known as the Mufakane, usually meaning the crushing or scattering, an especially violent period of civil conflict in southern Africa that led to the deaths of millions upon millions of people. By the mid-1830s, when the Boer trekkers, descendants of Dutch settlers on the far southern tip of Africa, began moving inland to escape British rule. They found the territory to be mostly empty. Thus followed the carving up of the continent by the industrialized European powers, culminating in 1890 when Cecil John Rhodes formally took control of much of the area, naming part of it after himself, Rhodesia. Thus began a close to 90-year period when the white minority government made every effort to deny any link between the stone cities that dotted the landscape and the contemporary Africans of the region. 
Even after independence in 1980, the historical ordeal of Great Zimbabwe was not over, when government officials put pressure on historians to make the city appear revolutionary in nature to match their own political sentiments. Nevertheless, kingship still survives today in rural areas of Zimbabwe, a direct continuation of the medieval cities that once ruled this land. This video is part of Project Africa, a collaboration between more than 20 history YouTubers. Be sure to check out the video before this one by Hikma History, and the one after by Al Mukadima. You can find links to everything in the description below.